pray. Father, we are so grateful for all that you've done in our lives since last Sunday. You have been faithful. It's only one reason that we're here, blessed, standing upright. Any blessings that are a part of our body, mind, the car we drove, the house we left, the families that were around us, friends that greeted us, one word to stamp across all of it, your faithfulness. I thank you, Lord, from here to Europe, to East Asia. You are being faithful to all that you've promised. And yes, Lord, it grieves us when we do not understand the ways of suffering that you use in order to accomplish your eternal ends. But we believe. That for all those who endure, they will reign with Christ. All those who die to themselves and believe that Christ is ultimate, they will live forever on His throne. Father, so bolster that truth today. It doesn't take much from the winds of adversity to shake us. Earth trembles and then we tremble. But today, would you renew our faith and for the first time in someone's life, give them faith that the only way of reigning and living forever in the city of God is for the one who will speak for them in the end, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. On May 10th, 1940, Hitler and the Nazis were ravaging Europe. Winston Churchill had just been made Prime Minister of Great Britain, and he met with his cabinet three days after that appointment and to the House of Commons delivered these words. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all cost. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and how hard the road may be. When I read these words by Churchill, I often ask myself, what did you feel like when you were speaking to Parliament that day? Confident, angry, or intimidated, yet you knew that you had to be the leader. Therefore, you had to speak courage into men who were going through fear just like you. I'm so grateful that he never gave up, and Britain never gave up. This call to not give up, is the heart of the passage that we're looking at today. It is the end of the passage that Eason's family chose to dedicate today in 2 Timothy chapter um, 2. The setting in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is this. The Apostle Paul is in the Mamertine prison in Rome, in Rome uh, worldwide evangelist, now arrested, chained to a Roman guard awaiting his execution. And if you ever want to see a hope in, hope in the midst of adversity, listen to Paul speak from that setting. This is my gospel. 
for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. Now that's sort of where we left you all off a few weeks ago, and now we want to continue in uh, the progression of his encouragement. If there's one man that Paul wanted to encourage by writing these words, it was the pastor of the church at Ephesus, a city of 250,000 people, cosmopolitan, immoral, um, self-reliant, sophisticated. Timothy was assigned to pastor the first church that was planted in Ephesus. He's young. Imagine 30 years old. You're shepherding these people who have just come out of a pagan lifestyle. They have declared by their life and by their lips that they no longer will adore and give allegiance to the gods of Ephesus, the gods that are worshipped by every single person in your neighborhood and family. And they are declaring that Jesus Christ is the exclusive Savior of the world. They don't say this to be politically incorrect. They just say this because they realize that no other supernaturally born, miracle-working man has made claims to be the light of the world, to forgive sins, and verified those claims by dying on a cross after a sinless life and rising from the dead. So they've transferred their allegiance to Jesus, and now all around them are people who despise them and threaten them, imprison them, execution them, and you're Timothy, the pastor, and you realize it's your preaching that has produced this zeal that has led to this suffering, and you want to check out. You're tired of leading, you're tired of, of the grief that's occurring in your church and is being reciprocated to you in sorrow and tears, and you realize there is a bounty on your head as well by the local authorities. So you begin to waver just a little bit in your zeal. You lose a little confidence in your calling. Give way to a little self-pity. And you're looking for someone to tell you it's okay to lessen up. Change the tone of your preaching. It's okay. God will understand And the Apostle Paul, while he's chained to that Roman guard, writes these words and said, It is not okay. And I will not give you self-pity. I will give you strength from this great promise. Verse 11, 2 Timothy 2, here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So you can see in the text four if-then statements. The first two are positive. The second one builds on the first, and the fourth... Three and four are not positive, they are negative, and the fourth clarifies the negative of the third. And then they all begin with this statement, here's a trustworthy saying, which from all we can ascertain by looking at biblical and 
extra biblical documents is that simply means you know what I'm about to say. This was a maybe a hymn that had been written by this time for the church. And he's saying it every week. In other words, he's saying, here's a trustworthy saying. I know you're familiar with what I'm about to say. Not just familiar, but it's a faithful saying. The word trustworthy is the same word, pistos, that's used at the end of the, the fourth if where God is faithful. So here's a faithful saying, and it's faithful because God is faithful. But he's saying, you have heard this before. You're having a little trouble believing it now, but you know what I am about to say. And so let's look at it one of the if-then statements at a time. 2 Timothy 2.11, second half, if we died with him, we also live with him. You come to that and you have to ask yourself as a scholar, is he talking about physical death? Could be, I don't think so. Because he's going to get to physical suffering in the next if-then. So I think he's saving physical suffering. I think this is just pure gospel. You die with Christ, you live with Christ, exactly as we see in Romans 6, verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus. So if we died with Christ, we believe we also live with him. I, I think that Romans 6, 6, which is pure gospel, it's the best deal in the world. If you just give up your rights, give up you trying to be Lord of your life, give up boasting and your ability, your goodness to get to heaven. If you'll just give all that, all you get is give up and trade it all for the salvation of Jesus Christ. If you die to self-love, you'll live. You'll live every single time. The result is you'll live forever in heaven. What a deal. What a deal is the gospel. If you'll just die to you, put Richard, selfish Richard to death, and let Jesus be Jesus in me, I'm going to live. So I think that's what he's talking about there. It's simply a reference to dying physically, spiritually so that we can live forever in the city of God. That leads to the second if then. Verse 12, you can see how they build on if we endure, we also will reign with him. So you can see the build here. Chapter, I mean, uh, the first, verse 11, he's just saying, die, live. Now he's asking for greater commitment here, suffer. If you die, you live. But if you endure suffering for Jesus, then you reign with him. Altogether different promise. This also is nothing but straight gospel, the reigning with Christ. We see that in Revelation 3. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. What is that like? As I also over, overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus won the right by his deity and by his sacrifice to sit on the throne of God. And now he invites you to sit on the throne with him. And Revelation 5.10 says, when you sit on the throne with the king of kings, you'll have kingly power, priestly privilege, and you will reign over all the earth when the earth is going to be made completely under the power of Christ in the thousand-year reign that we call the millennium, the coming reign of Christ. You will reign with him. Now, the, what I love about this, <clears throat> this verse in 2 Timothy 2 if we endure, 
we reign. Here's why I like that verse. It doesn't say if we win. You ever seen a ticker tape parade thrown in New York City for the, like a world championship, uh, Super Bowl, or somebody wins a World Series, and you go down, all this ticker tape, celebration of people. You do that only because you do what? You win. You, you win the national championship as a football team, and you get invited to the White House. You get invited to the White House not because you're a loser, <laughs> but because you win. That's not how it works in Christianity. He didn't ask you to win. He asked you to endure. He asked you to obey. He asked you to serve. He asked you to wait. When you lose your health on the mission field, you lose someone you love while you're loving Christ, you lose your reputation, you lose all the goals that you set early in ministry, don't give into the doubts that this is not profitable, that this pain is meaningless, this has no purpose. You don't have to do anything in times like that other than just endure, just wait and let him figure it out. So when you read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, you need to be thinking reward. I'm waiting on reward. Reward that will give to me not by my winning, but by my enduring. The motivation to endure is the worth of Jesus, the growth and joy of the church. We saw that in our last study. And the certainty of Christ's reward. You get those three things down, you'll endure. You waver on those three beliefs, and you will probably not endure. Something has to be motivating you other than self-protection. If it's all about self-protection, you'll not endure when you feel self not being protected. But if this is what motivates you, the worth of Jesus, the growth of the church, and the certainty of Christ's reward, you will endure and you will say, with John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, maybe, maybe, I have loved my Lord, and wherever, should be wherever, I have loved my Lord, and wherever I have seen the print of his shoe in the earth, I have covenanted to put my shoe there also. And that cost him 12 years of his life in prison. Endurance. It's amazing all the things we think of when we talk about I'm going to disciple somebody. Like I'm going to fill them with knowledge. I'm going to teach them. I'm going to teach them the whole Bible. Let me tell you what the main key of discipleship is. Helping someone endure. That's what discipleship is all about. Hugh Black, Scottish preacher, said this, one of his famous sermons, Christ's church has survived through her power to endure. The mustard seed planted with tears 
and watered with blood, has stood the hazard of every storm. She conquered violence, not by violence, but by patience. Her sons were ready to die and to die daily. The church met the Roman Empire and broke it through the sheer power to endure. She was willing to suffer and to suffer and afterwards to conquer. So those are the powerful ways or the the positive ways today of looking at endurance. But Paul, in knowing how difficult it is to endure, inspires us or at least arrests our attention for the sake of endurance by going negative also in this passage. And you say, why would he do that? Well, it must be important. We must be that prone to quit if he has to bring in a reminder of a negative reality. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we disown him, he will disown us. What does it mean exactly to disown Christ? Because that is a serious problem and a serious reaction by God. And the answer is, I don't fully know that answer, which I think is supposed to cause us to have always a healthy respect for living in persistent, willful, deliberate sin. It should shake us up. That's what the verse is intended for, because God knows we can go in that direction. If you forced me to say, what's it mean to deny, I'll give you some thoughts. I think they're all in the neighborhood. I'm just saying they may not be completely full explanation. The word disown comes from a Greek word, arneomai. If I disown Christ, arneomai, I refuse to agree with him. Arneomai means I'm not going to agree with you. I'm not even going to claim association with you. So that that helps a little bit, knowing the difference between denying and struggling. Like all of us do, denying is big. Denying is sort of defined also for us by a, 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 a scripture. When Jesus had been crucified, The Apostle Peter later told the crowd that did it why they did it, what it took to crucify him. Acts 3, he said, Peter's speaking, Peter's preaching in Jerusalem, you handed Jesus over to be killed, and you are Naomi. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned, then describes Jesus, the holy and righteous one, and asked that our murderer be released, and Jesus be killed. So if you said, what does our Nehemiah, what does disown mean there? It means that somebody looked at Jesus Christ and said, you are no different than any other man. In fact, you are less than a murderer. You have less rights to live, Jesus, than a murderer. So Easy to see there that disowning would be a big deal. You're saying you're not worthy to even be alive. So that's a a starting place for the word deny. 
you don't feel within you a sense of the preeminence. That's what's happening there. They do not believe in the preeminence, that he's the ultimate. There is no passion to adore him. Listen, being a Christian, the last thing it means is being perfect. But what it does mean all the time means to be passionate. I passionately believe, even though I didn't obey him this week, even though I disobeyed him, I passionately believe he's the Son of God who left his throne in heaven to enter the womb of Mary, to grow up as a man sinless, that he might die on a cross for my sins and be resurrected from the dead to declare his authority over all power. Whether or not I can live up to that this week, I'm passionate. I believe that. I would, I've never even thought about denying that. So Christ deniers do not believe in what I just said about Christ. Those who deny Christ, when they fall into like any, anything, I mean this week we're going to fall into greed, anger, lust. But if you are a Christ lover, as soon as that occurs in your life, your heart will be seared as with a hot iron. It will break your heart. A Christ denier will feel no regret about his beliefs or his behavior. Let me just give you five. You can write these down later because I'm going to fly. So as you stayed a long time in church last week, thank you. We'll not try to speak as long as sweet Sophia. Just sometimes wish there weren't clocks we had to go by, but well, she didn't have a clock. But you told me you didn't care. Sophia wrote me this week and said she stayed with Lisa and me. She said, I enjoyed my time in your home getting to know you, Lisa is nicer than you. <laughs> so let me fly for the sake of the clock. These are areas of Scripture where the word deny is used. Biblical examples of denying Christ, Titus 1c, 1.6. A person who enjoys Christian language and Christian people, but lives in moral rebellion. Titus says that's a Christ denier. Jude 1, 1 through 4, is a deceptive person who joins a church with the motive of leading believers to depart from Christ. It's a Christ denier. You come in secretly. Matthew 10, 32, 33, a person who's ashamed and embarrassed to publicly identify as a follower of Christ. Matthew 10, 33, a person who rejects Jesus' claim to be Savior of the world. That's a wrong reference. That should be 1 John 2 because this verse is in reference to the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist. So right statement, wrong reference. That's 1 John Chapter 2, a person who rejects Jesus' claim to be Savior of the world would be a Christ denier. And so here's my sort of summary of this. Disowning Christ, you say he's not worthy to be worshipped as supreme over the universe, not worthy to be trusted as Savior from sin. You're looking for forgiveness elsewhere. 
not worthy to be followed in the daily search for wisdom. You're looking for truth elsewhere. And not worthy to be followed in daily decisions of morality. Those would be examples of a Christ denier. So here's the question you're asking today. When you see people fall away, some of you will ask me in the lobby afterwards. I'll go ahead and answer it now. Are the deniers that we see in Scripture, we see Peter, Judas, Demas, the crowd, of John 6 crowd, is it momentary denials or are they firm denials? Momentary would be good, like all of us. Healthy struggle to obey and we come back. Firm denial, no attempt, you don't feel guilt. So all of these people that fall away in Scripture, where are they? Are they momentary deniers or are they firm deniers? And the answer is, in many cases, we don't know. It's up to God, and we leave it up to God of what somebody's eternal state is. It's just not comforting when you see it happen. Are they momentary denying or are they firmly denying? Well, this leads us to the final if. In 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Not an easy verse to figure out. I, didn't, I struggled with it all week until I saw it, has to, it, has, it lives in a neighborhood. So I need to go ask the other neighbors what it means. So I go back to the previous verse, if we disown him, he will disown us. I know verse 13 is connected to that, obviously. Anybody could see that. And so here's what's happening in verse 13. Paul is telling us, I just told you something. If you disown Christ, he will disown you. If you say he's not the Savior, his blood is no different than the blood of a man, blood of a dog. He doesn't have truth, didn't rise from the dead. I don't owe him anything. If you deny him, he's going to deny you. When you stand before him, you won't go to heaven. Then Paul says, and the reason why you know that's true is because God is faithful to keep the promise of verse 12. You deny him, he'll deny you. God is faithful to keep that promise. I told you the final two were negative. It is negative. If you rip verse 13 all by itself, you can say it like this. If we live our entire life in faithlessness, it'll be all right in the end because God will just clean it all up and forget everything. That's what happens to that verse, verse 13. Rip it out of its context, and it looks like live however you want, and God will be faithful to whatever, and forget it all. You attach it to its neighbor, and it means that God has promised to deny all those who deny him. And he is faithful to keep that promise. For God would never deny himself. That is, God has already told us that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus had paid out of love the price for your salvation through the shedding of his blood. He has shown you that no man on earth has ever lived a supernatural life as Christ has, and risen from the dead. And God has said, my son is the only path, 
and the only hand that can lead you on that path to my city. And for God, in a twisted definition of love, at the end of history, we're to say, ah, just kidding. I'm really letting everybody in the kingdom at the end. For him to do that, he would have to deny himself of everything he's ever said about Christ. That's what the verse means. So he is faithful in that he will never deny himself and he will keep every promise that he's ever made. So the point of all of 2 Timothy chapter 2 is God's faithfulness. You got to hear this. God says, I will be faithful to reward all those who lose. And just try to serve me and nothing works out, but they just cling even with the weakest grip to the belief that Jesus is the Son of God who died for them. They, they may limp across the finish line, they may crawl across the finish line, but if you just endure, what a deal. All you've got to do is endure. If you endure, you're going to sit on a throne with Christ. God's going to be faithful to give you that throne. If you say Christ is not worthy, his blood is no common, no different than any other body's blood, he will be faithful again and deny you. So we, we want this kind of God. He's faithful to reward all those who follow Christ. He's faithful to judge all those who deny his precious son. Now what we love about 2 Timothy, Paul at the end of his life, beat to a pulp a hundred times, rejected, hated, now in a Roman prison cell about to die. And after a hundred, after a thousand tests where God has taken him through trial, Paul says, He's faithful. I'm convinced he's faithful. And Timothy, I'm begging you, Timothy, don't quit. Because I have found God to be faithful in my life. You've got a few years left, Timothy. If you will just endure, he's faithful. You're going to sit on the throne, Timothy. You're going to reign over all of the world. And all of this is true because Paul and Timothy served one who is called in Revelation the faithful witness, Jesus Christ. You know what we're like? We're like little streams in the desert. Sometimes we got water in the stream. Sometimes we're dry as a bone. God is filled with pure, crystal, flowing river in all of eternity. And in him there's no darkness at all. And he is always the same, full, never wavering. And Jesus Christ demonstrated this in his life, perfectly responding to God the Father, always faithful. And the reason that we're going to heaven is because Jesus never wavered in his faithfulness to our Lord. And if you believe that, you cling to that, you're going to spend eternity with him on the throne. He's 
the faithful witness. So when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, you go, wow, made quite an impact in his three years. Three years. (laughs) Three years to impact the world. You know why? Because his faith perfectly matched God's faithfulness. Now, we're not going to touch that, but what a, what a question if I were to ask you today. What if your faith matched God's faithfulness? What if you would believe God always that he was faithful? Whew. Be a strong, powerful, enduring life. Well, let me wrap this up with one or two great verses about the faithfulness of God. You're going to make it. If you will simply... Keep coming, keep putting yourself under the teaching of the Word, read at home, read cool, godly Twitter statements, listen to Christian music, you just put yourself under the influence of the Holy Spirit, letting Him anoint you with the oil of renewal every day, just be near Him, you're going to make it. And you won't fall away because that's how he keeps you. He keeps you through church, keeps you through the Bible, keeps you through encouraging brothers and sisters. You're going to make it. 1 Thessalonians 5 says you will. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he'll do it. You're going to make it. God doesn't begin a work and then get disgusted with it. He never leaves the workshop. Can I ask you this morning, though, have you left the workshop? You've given up on God and not believing He's faithful. Our problem is we want the mysteries of pain answered now. He's not going to do it. He's just going to give you promises instead of answers. The promises we looked at. In 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. If you die with him, you live with him. If you endure, you reign. That's what you get, not answers. But you will have everything you want answered in heaven. I love what Alexander McLaren says. God is a liar unless heaven is to complete the experiences of earth. If these poor natures of ours at their best here were all that Christ had won by the travail of his soul, you think he'd be satisfied? We need heaven to vindicate the faithfulness of God. He's going to reward you. You're going to sit on a throne. All you got to do is endure. Just lose for Jesus, and you sit on a throne. In 1833, at the age of 17, Samuel Clopton gave his life to Jesus Christ. Twelve years later, boarded a ship for China. It was a new work in China. This particular mission mission agency that he was with never had one missionary. He's the first missionary from that agency to China. So along with him, they sent the United States ambassador, Alex Everett, to China with this 
new work, new exploration. Maybe things were less complicated then, but the U.S. ambassador went with the first missionary. Alex Everett, U.S. ambassador, died very shortly after they arrived. So Samuel Clopton and his wife, Keziah, had a child in their first few months there and lost their good friend, the ambassador. When Samuel Clopton went to the ambassador's funeral, it was scorching heat. The funeral was brutally long. Samuel Clopton got sick during the service, came home, told his wife, this is not a normal sickness. This is not on the board. Let me just read him, his words to his wife, Keziah. I trust in my Savior I love him more than ever. I would like to live longer for your sake and our boys. I'd like to preach the gospel to these who are dying in China. But I am resigned to the Savior's will. If he calls me, I am ready to go live near to God. On July 7th, 1847, Samuel Clopton died. He'd only been in China for one year. He was 31 years old. His wife returned to the United States 10 months later as a widow, as a mother. She lived until the boy was 12, and she died. Their son, Samuel Jr., never grew bitter over the non-answers of losing both parents as they tried to serve Christ. Instead, he started a mission on Clay Street in Richmond, Virginia. And among the first attenders, the first class that was filled up in Richmond were Chinese immigrants. That mission grew so mightily, it turned into the Clay Street, or the Calvary Church of Clay Street in Richmond, Virginia. And Samuel Clopton Jr. became its first pastor and served there for 20 years. I'm so grateful for my good friend David Brady, whom I spoke with last night. Thanked him again for writing this book, Not Forgotten, of these missionaries that have been forgotten. I said, thank you. I said, I'm telling our people tomorrow again about one of your, one of your guys. Thank you for introducing me to Samuel Clompton. This is what David writes in the book. Christ's mission will only be accomplished with great sacrifice. The spread of the gospel will cost us. We cannot be followers of the man of sorrows without taking up our own cross. People will die in this effort, but everyone dies. The question is not what we die from, but rather what we live for. So it's pretty sad that we in 21st century America, Christian evangelical America, are consumed with how people die, not so much consumed with how they live. What do they live for? You're going to die. Maybe disease, maybe an accident, maybe on the mission field. You're going to die. So in one sense, it really doesn't matter what you die from. What does matter is 
prior to that moment, what did you live for? Brady continues. God does not promise that we will reach heaven's shores unscathed by sickness, persecution, hardship, struggle, or death. He does promise we will arrive. And when we do, hear this, nursery workers, children's teachers, camera operators, parking lot attendants. And when we do arrive. Every act of faithful service will be remembered and rewarded. You're going to sit on the throne. Just endure. Well, you say, I didn't endure this week. I didn't either. But I have hope because the greatest statement of all the statements regarding the faithfulness of God in the Bible the most hope-giving statement regarding God's faithfulness is about what we're to celebrate. Check this out. Maybe one of the first verses you ever learned in student ministry. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and will forgive us. He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And purify us from all of this week's unrighteousness. Every single time in a brokenhearted plea to God, I did it again. Jesus, would you forgive me? Every time the faithful one of revelation will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that's why one day you will sit on the throne.